Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation with U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. We assess in Atlanta that there is 94,630 veterans who are unvaccinated today. And we will vaccinate them. We will vaccinate their spouse. We will vaccinate their caregiver. We will vaccinate their children at the VA medical facilities in Atlanta. That conversation is just moments away. But first this, DeKalb County officials held a press conference earlier today to discuss a recent international cyber attack that infiltrated the Tenant Landlord Assistance Coalition Program, also known as TLAX. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman confirmed the attack occurred on March 24th and said officials were able to limit the intrusion, but the server containing data for the TLAX program was compromised. We are fully cooperating with federal authorities to assist and support them to seek out, to find, and hopefully to bring to justice those who attempted and indeed uh, infiltrate our system. Thurman said the server has been turned over to federal authorities. He added the cyber attack would not delay the application process for those qualified to receive assistance. But I want to assure all of our residents and citizens, and particularly the landlords and tenants who have and will seek assistance through this program, that our government has been vigilant, uh, has been persistent and consistent in assuring that those who qualify for the help will receive support as long as resources remain. Next Monday, June 21st, DeKalb County will reopen the application process for the Tenant Landlord Assistance Coalition Program, but using a new system, and the information is located on the county's website. CEO Thurman says people most at risk for being evicted will be given priority and that the county has hired additional staff to help process applications. Coming up next, I'll speak with U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. President Joe Biden laid out a goal to have at least 70 percent of all Americans vaccinated by the 4th of July, which is coming up. Now, that 70 percent benchmark does include veterans. And here's what we don't know. How many veterans out there want to get vaccinated, maybe having some challenges when it comes to access? And of course, there are a lot of other optics as well. Now, right here in Georgia, we know that the state is right around 32 percent in terms of those who are fully vaccinated, and that is well below the national average. And back to our nation's veterans, while some veterans are getting vaccinated, some may still be hesitant about getting the vaccine. And joining me now to talk through all of this and the push to get more veterans vaccinated is the Honorable Dennis Richard McDonough, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Secretary McDonough, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Rose. I'm really, I'm really honored to be with you. What an opportunity. Thank you for it. Let's begin with what you know, if you do, the latest data regarding 
veterans who have been vaccinated. Are you all able to have even a snapshot of the percentage of veterans living here in the United States that are vaccinated? Yeah, so I, the snapshot that we have is the number of veterans we have vaccinated. And we think that number is around 3 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, importantly, we've also vaccinated tens of thousands of our fellow federal government employees. We've, we've vaccinated now 70,000 spouses and caregivers of veterans. And we've also, by the way, I learned this morning, vaccinated about a couple of hundred children of Mm -hmm. veterans, which tells you the kinds of people we have authorization to vaccinate. Veterans, spouses, caregivers, and children who are caregivers of of, uh, veterans. So we've done about 3 million. There's about 19 million veterans in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we think a lot of those vets have been vaccinated in other places, not by us. But we also think too many still have not yet been vaccinated. How concerning is that number? If we're talking about 11 million veterans right here in the U.S. and you've vaccinated about 3 million, the percentages still are not in a favorable where you would like them to be, I imagine. I'm not going to rest on this until we've vaccinated uh, every vet who wants to get vaccinated. And so the reason why is uh, we know that health outcomes are better when you're vaccinated. We know that the vaccine is safe. And we know that with vaccination comes greater freedom to move, to see families, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters. Mm -hmm. And so we will keep pushing on this, which is why we're doing as much as we're doing to make vaccine available for our veterans. Before we get to some of those initiatives, I I do want to start with maybe some of the continuing barriers and challenges. I want to start, though, with those veterans living overseas. Is the Department of Veteran Affairs, are y'all able to help them at all with getting a vaccine? I know in different parts of the world, access is is going to vary. But can you all help those veterans? You know, we're looking at this very aggressively right now. We've actually heard from veterans in different places We were in touch with a veteran in Thailand. We're looking very aggressively at expanding the efforts we're doing in Philippines, where we have a lot of veterans, and we also have a veteran uh, clinic. So we are vaccinating uh, hundreds. We're hoping to grow that to thousands of veterans, caregivers, spouses in Philippines. Other veterans, we so far cannot because... Uh, we don't have facilities mm-hmm. in those countries where we can administer the vaccine. But what I'd urge veterans who are overseas to do is to be in touch with us. Uh, and they can find out how to get in touch with us at va.gov slash COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. And there's information there and then also ways for them to get in touch with us. And if we can get to somebody, believe me, we will. Let's now tackle some of those challenges or barriers, and let's begin with mindset, Um, because as you know, there are many in the nation who do not want to get the vaccine, whether it's something to do with their personal religious belief, not having enough belief in the science. In other words, we could say vaccine hesitancy. Yes. What's the initiative to reaching those veterans? Here we know in Georgia the push is to have primary care health physicians, those in the community who interact with folks to take the lead on this. Veterans, of course, are part of our community. What initiatives do you think work best for you all to get those veterans vaccinated who have some hesitancy? Yeah, well, let me, let me, exp- let me uh, mention three things just as illustrative of a larger effort. Our local VA leadership has worked very closely with Stacey Abrams uh, to message our veterans and with uh, former University of Georgia Bulldogs coach uh, Vince Dooley mm-hmm. to make sure that they're communicating in their channels uh, to people who are hearing them what we can do to make vaccine available to veterans. So that's the first thing what we're doing, mm-hmm. which is communicating uh, through uh, established 
uh, state figures. And by the way, with Rose Scott in uh, Georgia, trusted interlocutors to say, hey, this is available. Second is we're we're bringing vaccine to people. We have mobile units and we move those units around and get them to people. So if there's a question of access, of travel, of wanting to be safe, uh, not be exposed to something, Mm -hmm. we'll come to you. Mm -hmm. So again, go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine. Third, we're also contacting every vet that we have in our system. We have 9 million of them, veterans in our system. We're contacting them with texts, letters, emails, phone calls, and we're giving information and we're having our doctors are constantly calling and our nurses are constantly calling veterans to respond to their questions. Because if you have questions of the type that you raised, Rose, about safety, about efficacy, about some things that you've learned on the internet. Our doctors, many of them veterans themselves, nurses, many of them veterans themselves are there to answer your questions. And what we find is when people get their questions answered, they feel better about getting the vaccine. If you're just tuning in, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, and we're talking through the push to get more veterans vaccinated. Now let's focus on another population, and that is the rural communities. And we know that President Biden, part of his wish list, if you will, was everyone to have access to a vaccine within five miles of where they live. Uh, Through your lens, of course, that would include veterans and obviously in those rural areas and also in our tribal lands as well. Do you all have specific initiatives to reach that population? We do, and we've been doing this all across country. We're doing it in Georgia. Uh, we've done it in Alaska. Uh, we're doing it uh, in the Pacific Islands, uh, where we have a lot of our veterans, heroes. Uh, we're doing it in the Southwest uh, on some of the tribal lands that you're talking about, and that's through these mobile units. Mm-hmm. These mobile units come in two shapes. One is planes. We're flying vaccine into distant communities, to make sure that people who are living in isolated areas don't have to leave to come get the vaccine, we'll bring it to them. Mm -hmm. So that's one form of mobile unit. The other form of mobile units are the vans that many of our veterans are familiar with, which are buses that are basically mobile doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And not only do we come with the mobile units, but we come with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, so that we can administer the vaccine and answer any question on site. So if you have questions about uh, getting a mobile unit near you, all you have to do is go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine and all your questions can be answered there and you can get in touch with us there and we'll react to what your specific needs are. Coming into the segment, we talked about that 70%, that benchmark that President Biden talked about in terms of vaccinating Americans. Is there a benchmark for you all in terms of our nation's veterans that you think this is a great target range for us? What is it? Yeah, you know, we have a saying around here on Care for Our Veterans, which is uh, we're going to serve them as well as they've served us. So what we're going to do is we're going to maintain this vaccine safely and we're going to do everything to get to every single veteran who wants it. And I won't stop our docs, our nurses, our pharmacists, our schedulers will not stop until we've done that. And so uh, so my answer to that, Rose, is acceptable level for me is 100% of our veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to keep going at it until we get that done. Secretary McDonough, as you know, the VA system nationwide has had some longstanding challenges, including a, a backlog of wait times and outdated infrastructure in terms of records and so forth. And to be fair, we should note there have been some overhauls, some achievements. As you come into this role, what are your top priorities for the Department of Veteran Affairs? Yeah, I've got three of them. Number one, as the president said, you, uh, I, I want you to be the nation's number one advocate for veterans. And so that's what I'm going to do. And that means I'm going to fight like hell for veterans. Two is every decision I make is going to be around the question you just raised, which is, how do we get access in a timely manner, in a timely manner for veterans? Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody waiting for care anywhere. And then third is, 
I want to make sure every decision also improves outcomes for veterans. We know that whatever you say about the VA system, you talk to a vet, Rose, they'll say that they like the care they get at the VA if they can get in. Mm-hmm. So we have to get them in there. But we also know not only that they like it, but vets in our care fare better. They have better health, health outcomes. They have better economic outcomes over time. And so my commitment is to fight like hell for vets, to ensure timely access for vets, and then to ensure that that access means improved outcomes for them. All of that is wrapped under what I just said, which is mm-hmm. we are going to fight as hard for them as your brothers have fought for us. And, Mr. Secretary, and that's what we owe them. And Mr. Secretary, what about those veterans that we can't see, that we can't reach right now due to perhaps being unsheltered or, or being homeless? Also, mental health access. Having a backlog of a wait time to see someone, that just doesn't work. So that's exactly right. The prior, exactly right. Yeah. That's the right. That's the right question. And what I'd say in in the first instance is this: you're going to see people who you don't know are vets, mm-hmm. because our vets are everywhere. They're leaders in our community. They're on every uh, every effort that you see in this country. So we we have 19 million vets who have pledged to do everything, you know, sacrifice everything for us. We got to do that for them. So then let's go find them on homeless vets. The president has proposed almost $500 million increase this year in our investments in homeless vets. In the last 10 years, going back to 2010, we've reduced the number of homeless vets by half, Mm -hmm. and we've kept 850,000 vets and family members in their homes in a time of crisis. So part of homelessness is preventing homelessness in the first instance. So we're doing a good job there on mental health. The president is asking, just asked, just got uh, $17 billion extra dollars for health care in the VA system. He's asking for about a 10% increase in our budget next year. A lot of that is going to hiring additional health care professionals so that we can get vets, again, timely access and better outcomes. And we know that when they're in our care roles, they do better. And so we just have to get better at ensuring they get into our care on a timely basis. And then finally, again, for someone who may have joined us late, you all say if you are a veteran, if you are a caregiver, if you are a spouse, if you are a, a, a child, you are eligible to also get the vaccine in the sa- exactly at the same right. time with the vet? Yeah, that's exactly right. We assess in Atlanta that there is 94,630 veterans who are unvaccinated today. And we will vaccinate them. We will vaccinate their spouse. We will vaccinate their caregiver. We will vaccinate their children at the VA medical facilities in Atlanta. All you have to do is go to va.gov slash COVID vaccine, and we'll take it from there. And we really want to get you uh, vaccinated vets. We owe that to you, and we want to get it done. U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information for our veterans, not only here in Georgia, in the Atlanta area, but throughout the nation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. What continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. The Dunwoody City Council recently passed the city's new sustainability plan devised by the Dunwoody Sustainability Committee. It's the first revision of the plan since 2014. And joining me now with more is Dunwoody Sustainability Committee Chair, Nathan Sparks. Nathan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here with you, Rose. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's begin here, Nathan, because if you are summarizing the city of Dunwoody's, this overall vision for sustainability, what would entail? What would you say? Well, sustainability is kind of a way of being and a way of life. Um, In in Dunwoody, we wanted to make sure that we take care of the environment as we take care of each other. Uh, We want to be respectful to uh, one another, and we want to uh, have a thriving commerce where everyone likes to live and raise their family and do some good work. 
And before we get into this new revision of the plan, let me get your thoughts in terms of from a regional standpoint, because you all are part of the Atlanta Regional Commission. How would you assess then the region's approach to sustainability? Because look, every city has a different plan. Every area may have different top priorities. Well, the Atlanta Regional Commission has given us kind of a good template to follow that they have a green communities program that Dunwoody's been a part of. So they, they outline you know, several areas um, that we've kind of lined up in five pillars for, for ourselves. Um, you know, so it really is, um, I think, a, a common approach that we can all take. You know, we wanna make sure that we're leading in environmental sustainability. Uh, we wanna help our, our businesses kind of recognize the importance of their part of that. Um, and yeah, we want to, uh, to make sure our citizens have a good quality of life. And I think the Atlanta Regional Commission and its Green Communities Program gives us a lot of fr- uh, a good framework for all the cities to kind of interconnect and work together. And Nathan, let's get some clarity here because the Sustainability Committee, you all aren't exactly a part of city government. Are- well, the city of Dunwoody formed about 10 years ago. And while we have a city council and a city manager that runs a staff, we have a lot of engaged members of our citizen group. And whether it's from a, an ethics group or whether it's a developmental authority or an, even an art commission, sustainability committee is one of those groups. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a seven member team. Uh, were selected uh, and kind of can apply to the mayor uh, who appoints us. Uh, But from there, it's really our role to take a look at, you know, the the policies that we'd like the city to to create and uh, to then once we have those policies in place to to make sure the city staff and we as citizens are kind of walking that talk and uh, hold ourselves accountable to those standards of how we'd like to live. Nathan, how diverse is the committee? Because as you know, when you talk about addressing the needs of a community, obviously a community like Dunwoody has a, a different ethnicities and races. And how diverse is this committee? And do you feel like it's diverse enough in being able to meet all the needs and, and concerns of the, the city of Dunwoody as a whole? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Right now, it's geographically diverse, but that's not necessarily well represented. We have seven zones. So there's a a person that's appointed from each one of our seven zones and kind of follow the city council framework. We only have one woman on the committee right now, and we need more women represented for sure. Um, I think we have, you know, one person um, of a non-white ethnicity. So that's not a very good representation because Dunwoody is certainly very diverse racially. I don't believe we have anyone that's living in a multifamily home and a dwelling. And we have a lot of people in Dunwoody that call our city home who live, you know, in apartments or high rises or whatever it might be. And uh, they need more representation. So how do you approach that? Can you all ask the community what they want to be involved? Can you all form subcommittees? Can you make sure that when you are seeking input that at least you're getting comment from those groups that are not represented on the committee? We certainly can. Our monthly meetings are open to the public and we do have people who come in and make public comment. So that's a one way that they can easily get involved. Uh, But we also are out in city parks at at events and uh, they can come and reach, reach to us that way as well. We also have education that we're as a part of our plan and communications to where we want to be active in the community and, um, you know, take, take input. And then I think as we think about even such things as recycling and multifamily uh, developments, uh, what do they need? What, what would they like to have uh, provided uh, by the landlord or the, you know, the property owner, or is it something that they're uh, wanting to do, you know, with the city and city property. So those are some questions that actually the committee needs to wrestle with. And we most certainly need to have the input from everyone in the community. Nathan, let's go over some of these basic goals and objectives of the plan. Make Dunwoody a leader in environmentally environmentally sustainable policies and initiatives that lead to a better quality of life for its citizens and that will raise property values over the long term. Let's talk about this for a moment, Nathan. I think someone listening can understand, obviously, leading to a better quality of life for its citizens, but it's it's that will raise property values over the long term. How do you see that in, in the intersection of 
environmentally sustainable? Well, you know, I I think someone proposed then, and I could not argue with the idea that we all want to have a few more dollars in our pocket, right? We all want to have a better quality of life. And that comes with living in a place that's desirable to where more people want to be here. So if we have a beautiful landscape that we can go out and enjoy with good connectivity between our neighborhoods, get into the parks, um, you know, be on the roads and, and bicycle, um, you know, have great restaurants to, to, to go to, have wonderful schools that have good grounds and, you know, indoor classrooms versus outdoor classrooms and things like that and work with our, our partners in DeKalb on that. Th- that's going to really make, um, you know, our environment, our, yes, our natural environment, but I think our, our social environment uh, more desirable. Um, so, yeah, I think it would also um, lend itself to having I guess, a higher standard of living, if you will. How do you define higher standard of living? Well, I think that's something that should be about how you, for me personally, it's, a, it's about how I connect with nature. It's about, you know, being able to spend uh, time with my family outdoors. Uh, it's being in community with a diverse set of people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of ideas, um, you know, need to come into our community for, um, this new century that we're, you know, a fifth into, you know, what do we want to be? Um, you know, we've been here about 50 years. What do we want to be for the next 50 years? Um, so I think a, a high standard of living is, is one that's uh, diverse, inclusive, and is taking care of the environment for everyone. How do you all see transit and mobility being a part of this as well? I'm thinking about Northridge, which has no sidewalks, <laughs> but I also know that there are bus routes on Northridge. Um, how do you see transit and mobility uh, fitting into this sustainability plan as well for the city of Dunwoody? Well, I mean, we we certainly are looking forward to some of the, the transportation improvements at the top end and, and the completion of those. We've taken the approach that we want to have a complete street where bike lanes are possible, mm-hmm. um, that you know, people hopefully are getting out of motorized vehicles and into a more healthy way of moving around. But obviously, mass transit is important and connectivity of our trail systems is important. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some work at the Shambly uh, Sustainability Group, or actually their city council, where a multimodal approach is kind of taking a look, you know, there. I think those are future ambitions I'd like to see Dunwoody take on to think about how we could get people from MARTA into, um, you know, the Dunwoody Village area, because right now that's, you know, that's walking uh, for the most part or a rideshare kind of a, approach. So um, we've, we've got one business that uh, would like to put bicycles, you know, in those, those parking lots. One of those businesses came to our committee and expressed a little frustration because they couldn't find a vendor, if you will, in a parking lot to give them space next to the MARTA facility. So they let us know about that. So that's something I want to take up and and help uh, as we implement the plan uh, to have better solutions to get from public transportation into the heart of the city. And Nathan, as we wrap up, you of all people know the importance of involving the community. How do you ensure that everyone will benefit from this plan and there is no group left out? And surely when it comes to sustainability, you understand the importance of equity and inclusion. We have um, events that I think we should leverage, leverage, Rose. You know, community events like um, we just had a Groovin' on the Green and and Brook Run. We've got great parks where we have a lot of people um, gather that may be in our our multifamily homes. And we, we need to engage them and let them know what we're working on so that we can collect their reaction to those plans and give us feedback and, and ideas that would meet their needs. So, um, you know, I'll commit that we need to be present and visible so that they know what's going on. One of the things under the education, outreach and wellness is that we want to have adult and youth programs that help them understand that there's ways to, to be efficient, save money by, you know, looking at, I guess, the costs within how they live they can take those needless costs out so that they can have a better quality of life. So what are those things and how can they um, take benefit of uh, best practices and sustainability? So being present and I think asking is going to be a a key thing. And we can do that inside of our parks where we have education programs. 
Nathan Sparks is the chair of the City of Dunwoody Sustainability Committee. We've been talking about the committee's new revised plan for sustainability actions and plans for the city of Dunwoody. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate the opportunity. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. It's everywhere. Books, initiatives, TED Talks, forums, and conferences. It seems nearly every workplace environment is adopting some type of a DEI platform. Corporations, professional sports teams, nonprofits, churches, hospitals, as well as colleges and universities. Here's a question. What does an effective and actionable DEI plan actually look like? The University of Georgia has a plan. It's an 11-step, five-year diversity and inclusive excellence plan. And it was created by UGA's Planning Committee on Diversity and Inclusive Excellence. So back to that question I asked a few moments ago, what does it mean? Joining me now to talk more about UGA's plan and its goals is Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA, and she co-chairs UGA's Diversity and Inclusive Excellence Planning Committee. Dr. Cook, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin here. I'm curious, how often have you come across an article or a thought piece on DEI and your reaction was, what? That is not what DEI is about. Have you ever had that reaction? Yes, absolutely. And definitely, as you mentioned in the introduction, DEI is everywhere right now. So I am receiving constant emails and inquiries about DEI, including solicitations and, you know, new, there are new companies starting up that are doing DEI work. And so much of it, I feel, is kind of opportunistic mm-hmm. as, as opposed to being firmly, um, you know, kind of entrenched and ingrained in the literature, current literature and thought and, and a lot of innovative and progressive thought around DEI and DEI work. So what are the common misperceptions or quite frankly, what's flat out wrong about what DEI is all about? Let's get that out the way first. So at its core, you know, one of the major misconceptions, and, and this is across the board, is that DEI work is something that is precipitated by um, events. And of course, in our nation, we've had some events over the past year that have, you know, I think it has some really positive outcomes in bringing these issues to the forefront. But at the same time, they make it appear that DEI concerns and issues are reactionary, that, you know, when something happens, then we all become woke. And we all start to talk about it in new ways. And then, of course, when, when in that context, you know, it's only a matter of months or maybe a year or so, then you move on to the next thing. Whereas the reality of DEI, if we're going to be truthful about it and who we are as a nation and as a society, DEI work is at the core or needs to be at the core of everything we do, not as a passing fancy, not as something that we all are talking about because we've been disturbed by national events, but something that we all are thinking about in some real ways. So is DEI a concept or an actionable outcome based on the execution? I think that it should be an, an uh, you know an actionable outcome. What I always say is that people start people, and I say people, organizations, institutions start at different places. You've got to start at where you are. So as for some individuals, as well as for some organizations, it may it start off like okay, this is a concept that I've got to begin to wrap my head around. I think one of the things we're seeing is that people there are many people and organizations that didn't see themselves as part of the DEI conversation. It's like oh, that's for those people with those titles or with those identities that think about those things. That's not for me. That's not, I'm not a part of that. But the reality is everybody needs to be a part of it. So if you need, if you can start at that point of thinking about actual outcomes, perfect. But if you need, or your organization needs to start at a, at an earlier beginning point where you need to kind of understand the, the concept or the idea of DEI and what that all means, then that's where you need to start. So someone listening may say, well, Dr. Cook, let's, let's take us through this because my company is talking about DEI initiatives. 
But where does it begin? Does it just begin with, first of all, saying everyone needs to understand what DEI is all about? We adopt that we're going to be a part of this. And then do you take classes? Do you require your employees and managers to take classes? Is that it? Or does it have to be catered to each individual environment? Yes, absolutely. And I think that you touch on something in that question that is really critical, that it has to be catered to each individual environment. And I am a strong proponent of starting with self. I think that too often DEI work and DEI initiatives, and I get it, I I understand why, because if you are running a large organization and you need to launch something, you launch it and you, you know, it's it's typically external facing, like, okay, we're going to count up our, we're going to look at our demographics, and then we're going to set goals about, we need to increase the numbers of people here. We need to increase the people who have this identity or that identity, but for, for it to be truly impactful, for it to be truly effective, it has to start with the individual. And so I encourage at, at the institution at University of Georgia, when we have these conversations, even if it's for, you know, if we're having a, a 90 minute conversation, let's spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about self and having people look at where do you as an individual with it, at the workplace, in your own community, at home, what do you think about these things? Where do you see yourself and where do you see yourself contributing? And then build from there. Because otherwise, it's always something external, right? It's always something on the outside. And it's something also that I can pick up and put down when, you know, oh, okay, I'm at work. Okay, so let me get in my DEI mind frame because that's what they, the, the CEO has said we've got to do. Oh, now I'm at home. I can drop that. That's not, that's not important at home. But, you know, I think we need to start with the self. So DEI is not a destination. It's a journey. You know, we all have those posters (laughs) about life. (laughs) Yeah. It's the same thing as what you're saying. Exactly. In your role within the University of Georgia as co-chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Excellence Planning Committee, what are you tasked with? Before we get into those top priorities of the plan, but what are you tasked with? So at the University of Georgia, I I sit, I, I feel very fortunate because we as an institution with um, our leadership and under, under the leadership of our president, um, Jerry Moorhead, we've been working on diversity, equity initiative, uh, inclusive initiatives for years. So we've been doing a lot of this work, but for the purpose of this plan, we were charged as a committee to develop a strategic targeted plan for the institution over the next five years to move our diversity, equity, and and inclusion initiatives forward. The idea is that this is not all that we're going to do around DEI. There's going to be a lot more that's being done, some small initiatives, some large initiatives, but what are we going to do that, that we can say as an institution, these are institutional goals that everyone is going to be pulling in the same direction, that we are going to measure our progress on these goals. We're going to establish benchmarks and we're going to make sure that we are held accountable for our progress and our movement in these specific areas so that we as an institution, we're we're large community. We're a large organization, but so that we can have a shared understanding, a shared commitment, and a shared set of goals in terms of what we want to accomplish over five years. So that was our real charge. With the shared understanding, I want to get your thoughts on how much acknowledging past issues, wrongdoings, uh, discriminatory practices, racism, other biases, other isms, is that also part of what can be an effective DEI? And I say that because we know that institutions like UGA and not just UGA throughout, not just the South, but throughout the nation and not just in colleges and universities, we know the history of racism and discrimination in this country. Is that a part also when we talk about an effective DEI plan is you need to acknowledge those past wrongdoings? You know, right now we're in a space where depending on whom you ask, some say it's important. Some say it's not. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> I think it, you know, and it's, it's interesting for the, to, to get this question because I'm a historian. That's why. So, of course, I'm always looking at like where we've been and how that's how that impacts and how that has gotten us to where we are today. And interesting enough, for the University of Georgia, we're celebrating as we are as we're, un, you know, rolling out and launching this plan. We're also celebrating in 2021 the 60th anniversary of desegregation of the University of Georgia. So, you know, 1961, January 9th, University of Georgia 
Georgia um, was, you know, welcomed in some ways, um, its first two um, African-American students to campus. Um, and so, so for us as an institution, we are looking back and, and investigating and understanding that there are historic um, injustices and, and wrongs that as we look forward and talk about looking at um, the identity of our community, looking at the demographics, the numbers, who has access to the University of Georgia, that we have to recognize that history. We have to know and understand that history. And that is something we're always um, aware of as we often talk about historically underrepresented um, individuals at the University of Georgia. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA. And we're talking about the university's five-year 11-step DEI plan. With you as a co-chair and as provost and in the role that you play at UGA, in developing this plan, you won't get any pushback. And do you have to get approval from the board or the regents or anyone, trustees? Um, and actually, you know, as I said, I feel like we're in a fortunate position because we were, the charge from the president was for this committee of 21 people representing students, faculty, staff, and the community and alumni, um, that we were charged with actually coming forward with the goals. And so we have had communication with senior leadership, with the president, the provost, with deans and vice presidents around the goals, not for approval, because um, that wasn't the environment. Fortunately, we weren't, in, we weren't operating in an environment where we felt that we had to have approval, but for feedback, and I would say really to help us hone them. And we we received feedback that with the feedback that we received were not directives, but were like these are things you should consider. And for the most part, we found them found them to be things that would only um, really support the plan and make the plan stronger. I feel that in some of the initiatives and some of the goals that we have in the plan that they're very strong, and we did we have not received any pushback or censoring if you will around those from leadership. So let's start with the inclusive excellence priority number one. And you all are starting with students building an inclusive living learning environment that supports access and success for diverse students. Mm -hmm. So if you can, for our listening audience, give us a, a few of those, I guess, metrics that you all want to use to achieve that. And thank you, because this is an area where I do feel that we are just kind of putting it out there. Our first goal under this priority is to increase the enrollment of underrepresented students at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Basically, we're, we're acknowledging that the University of Georgia, in terms of our student population, needs to be more diverse. We recognize um, that in terms of all that we do. And so that is one of our, that's, we wanted that to be the first goal, to be stated very specifically in that. But, you know, uh, but to support that, there are other goals, such as our the second goal, to increase need-based student financial aid and scholarship. We recognize that for so many students that the, you know, across demographics, but definitely in those underrepresented demographics around race and ethnicity, first generation, socioeconomic, rural students, particularly in the state of Georgia, that financial need is, is really, really important. And then we want to expand resources to promote um, inclusive learning environments, because we feel that that that's really important that not only do you have that access, okay, so I can apply to the University of Georgia and I can get accepted and I can go. When I get there, what's the environment? We're not just trying to, this is not just a numbers game of getting folks in the door to say, oh, look, our numbers are up, but what type of environment are they walking in? Do we, are we as an institution providing the infrastructure so that these individuals can be successful? And then in inclusive excellence priority two, now you're moving to recruiting and retaining a diverse workforce. And you also say to advance your mission in the 21st century. If you had to assess now in terms of, let's just start with the professors and, and instructors and all the educators. Uh, is it okay? Needs improvement? Fairly good? Terrible? How would you assess it? That's a great question because, you know, if you compare us to similar institutions in terms of research one institutions, land grant institutions across the country, we're right on par in terms of the percentages of, let's say, African-American and Hispanic, um, Latinx and Asian um, faculty. But we don't think that that's good enough. Uh, you know, so that's great. That's, you know, so you feel like, okay, we're not doing anything terrible. But in terms of who we are as an institution, where we're situated in the state of Georgia and con considering the demographics for the state of Georgia and considering where we want to be as an institution, we feel that we are good, but we can definitely do much better. 
So we um, have a, a lot of our initiatives that come out of this um, inclusive excellence priority are to increase those numbers. And we started with that same, that first goal in this area was to increase the numbers of underrepresented faculty, staff, postdoctorate fellows, graduate assistants, and student workers. We just simply need to increase the numbers in terms of that representation. And we're looking at this, not just in terms of, again, getting numbers in the door, but where are these people located? Are they in the lower tier um, categories on campus? Is that where all our diversity is in terms of our staff? Or, you know, do we have diversity in terms of our deans, our vice presidents, our department heads? Because we need to have local leadership that's diverse because that's where people live. You know, it's great that I'm an African-American woman as vice provost, but most people don't engage with me, you know, on a daily basis. They're engaging with their the managers, the department heads. Are those people, do we have diversity there so that people are experiencing this diversity and support of the DEI in the places where they live? And then your inclusive excellence priority number three talks about expanding partnerships and outreach to strengthen diverse communities. Yes, we are, uh, you know, we're a land grant institution. We have a strong public service and outreach um, perspective and numerous initiatives across the state of Georgia, the region and the world, but definitely in the state of Georgia. And so this is really important for us, not just all across Georgia, but even in athens Clark County, where the University of Georgia is situated. What type of job are we doing in terms of our partnerships? What we don't want to do, and this is a lot of conversation came out of this, um, um, honestly, in our focus focus groups, which we did over 40 focus groups um, to come up to develop this plan, was that we don't want to go into communities and say, hey, we're here to save you. We are the University of Georgia. We're going to come and solve all, tell you what your problems are and solve your problems. That's not our perspective. We need to, what are we doing to go into communities and say, hey, we want to be a partner and to listen first to learn, and then to see how we can be of assistance. And so that's really the goal around that third inclusive excellence priority. How can we do that to help strengthen communities? And we were very particular, I should say, in that language to help strengthen um, recognizing that these these communities are doing doing what they're doing with on their, their own, they you know we we're not coming in as the as the, as the academic savior, but we're coming in to help strengthen what they're already doing and to help perhaps contribute to solutions in diverse communities. And Dr. Cook, uh, finally, as we wrap up and going back to that question I asked earlier, what does an effective and actionable DEI plan look like? Based on everything we've just talked about, and you've laid out this plan here. Might this DEI plan need to change, need to be altered along the way for UGA? Absolutely. And that's one of the things we've pushed in terms of flexibility, because what we're at the stage we're at now is as we release the plan, then the units, the schools, the college, and the major administrative units are going to be developing their own plans to support the university plan. And so folks have said, you know, well, what about in two years? What if, you know, new things erupt or we have new challenges or new opportunities that yes, that the diversity plan is, we, we envision it to be a flexible document, a living document that can, can move, can expand, if you will, Will to, uh, to address any issues that may come up. And that we find that we have huge success in one area, then we can move on into how can we push the envelope a little bit further in that area. Do you need to wait till the end of the five years, since this is a five-year plan, then to assess it? Or are you able to assess it along the way? We're going to do annual assessments. Units will be um, reporting annually um, on their their success on their individual plans, and we'll be collating that into an institutional annual report on the diversity and inclusive excellence plan. Because yes, we can't wait five years. You know, these things are happening in real time, and we've got to be responsive to the needs of our University of Georgia community. I want to end with this question because when I was looking doing my research and I watched a lot of TED talks <laughs> some people talked about there's too much focus on the D and DEI and not enough on the E and some people said well if you have the D and the E you don't need the I some people said well, it's time we get rid of the DEI and move to something else this whole DEI movement and, and space that we're in now through your lens this is your personal reflection that if it's being enacted in little bitty pockets throughout the different sectors, that they, it can really um, lead to some actual outcome for the entire nation. You look at, for example, I just did an interview with a police chief about mm -hmm. community policing in communities of color. 
You see DEI being this attribute that can really move this nation forward when it comes to when we talk about racism and all the other isms. I absolutely do. And I think that what we have to do, though, is to make sure that when you talk about flexibility, that we have flexibility in our understandings of DEI and recognize that people are coming to this conversation from so many different places and not just, you know, talking about people, um, white people or, you know, any specific co um, community, but everyone has is coming to this conversation from a different place. And if we can, as a, as a society, be flexible to say everybody has a part in this conversation. Everyone has a role to play, whether it's intentional or unintentional. You're playing a role in terms of the DEI work in your community, in your workplace, in your school, in your church, in your synagogue, in your place of worship, wherever that, whatever that those spaces are for you. And if we can do that and have conversations. Oh, man and have open conversations, then we can definitely um, make a huge difference. It's a long game, though. I will say, Ms. Scott, it is a long game. It, this is not something that's going to, you know, we're going to wrap up and put a nice bow on in the next 12 to 18 months as a society. But if we can be committed to, we can do better. And, you know, kind of sometimes it's easy to start at these simple phrases. Can we all agree that as a society, we can do better? And if we start there and then we can begin to investigate in terms of how each of us and how institutionally, how organizationally, how politically, how socially we can do better. And I think that we can make a difference. Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA and the co-chair for UGA's Diversity and Inclusive Excellence Planning Committee. Dr. Cook, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Now, you're not going to do a, a TED Talk and be one of those people that I'm going to talk about in a few months from now, are you? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Thank you, though. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Cook. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.